back, everyone. You're watching We Heart Therapy, the special series EFT Talk. I'm your host, Dr. Annabelle Bugatti, licensed marriage and family therapist and certified EFT supervisor and therapist here in fabulous Las Vegas, Nevada. And I am super excited to bring to our show Doc Hawk or Dr. James Hawkins. He is an ICEF certified EFT trainer and he is in Arkansas. And he is the founder of Healing Conversations, which is an organization that helps businesses and communities have healing conversations within their platforms and organizations. And he also is the clinical coordinator at the Joshua Center in Arkansas. And uh, we're really excited to bring him onto the show. And what we are going to be talking about today is using the attachment injury repair model within EFT and applying that to social injuries. So this is such an important topic and I'm so excited that we're able to have James on for this. Thank you, James, for being with us today. Oh, thank you, Annabelle, for having me on here. So if you could start everyone off, maybe those who are beginning in their training or aren't familiar, um, can you just kind of give a, an overview of what the attachment injury repair model is and how is it used in EFT? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the attachment injury repair model, once again, just like everything in EFT with Sue and with the team of trainers, came out of what is happening when when couples, particularly is where it was developed at, come in with these huge relational injuries, these injuries that aren't just like, you know, the arguments and conflicts, but is these moments that make them take up this never again stance where it, this moment, this betrayal happens in a way that reshapes their whole view of the relationship, themselves and their partner. And in a protective way, it begins to say, I can never fully open up to you again. I'll never let myself be in a place like that to be hurt like that again. And so this model is a way of what, what does it look like to work with them to begin to heal that relational injury, to reestablish trust and forgiveness. And so going through it, what are the steps and processes to help guide couples in an in a intentional way through healing an injury? And so, of course, my colleague here, Ryan Reyna, and George Fowler, really, they've we've all been kind of collaborating and talking. And one day, Ryan says, James, I think this is it. I think the attachment injury model could be a framework for us to help work with the community in a way of framing what this could look like in society. And we sat down, looked at the attachment injury model, and we're like, yep, we don't even really do step one really. We definitely don't do steps one through three really well, particularly step one and two. Um, and I say step, but we don't want to make this feel so like linear and rigid, but like like there are some essential, we don't get the first two ingredients done well. So, and then it breaks down because, you know, the same thing, like we work with couples and injury, the person who's injured their partner, wait, when can we just get past this? Can't we just remember the good times? You know, I said, I'm sorry. Can't we just get past this? How do we make this better? And they start trying to like, let's move to a bigger house. Let me buy you a bigger ring. Let me change. Mm -hmm. Let me do this. When they do all these things to like, let's make life just feel better and be in a happy place. Let's renew our vows. Let's go on a, 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 a new honeymoon. It's like, that's great. And that's good. But you can't skip over these other parts. You have to address the pain. Right. If not, you won't ever be able to really rest in is this new place that we're in? Is this, is it really true? Is it really real? And then the other partners over there are like, hey, I want to move forward too, but I still have the flashbacks. I have the memory. I have the trauma. Yeah. So I love what you're saying is, you know, when we work with our clients and 
really this is about how to use our skills and the model of EFT mm -hmm. and, and apply it to our own lives, particularly with, with injuries that are occurring in society and mm -hmm. never has there been a greater need for healing conversations to take place. So we're really like learning how to walk the talk because mm -hmm. as you said, you know, when we're in session, we use this process to help our couples and, you know, it's not enough to just create a happy environment around mm -hmm. them that doesn't, while that those can be good and well-intending things that doesn't address the pain and the actual injury that occurred and help the injured partner or person feel like their pain was really heard and understood and is going to be listened to and mm -hmm. adequately addressed. And so mm -hmm. that can, you know, almost create a recipe for it to come back up again because it's not really resolved. Yeah. And I would also give credit to Sue. I remember when I first met Sue and she made space and she met with a group of us EFTers to talk about some of this. And then um, she also made another time when Sue and I got together on Zoom and we just talked through it. And I really appreciated Sue's enthusiasm about, and this, I mean, she was really moved like to think like, wait a minute, you know, this is it. And like Sue's heart for like healing in the world and the community and just her willingness to walk alongside me and like help share her work with me in order to help do this and bring what, you know, security and attachment can look like in society. So I want to just always, you know, share appreciation for her, so. Yeah, Sue has always been the hugest advocator, I think, for humanity, right? And that's why I love attachment so much is I believe it gives us the keys to understanding humanity and gives us the greatest access point for empathy and compassion. And without empathy and compassion for each other, our humanity falls apart. Mm -hmm. And right now we really need to come together and find a way to have empathy. Well, I want to sound like super hopeful, but like to learn how to love each other as other people in society and to Correct. heal what's been broken. Yeah. And so EFT helps us facilitate that in our sessions with our clients. And it's so easy to, you know, help other people to, to know what to do when you're not the one in it. But Correct. then when somebody brings their pain to you or you have pain that you need to bring to someone else and you want them to hear it and understand, mm -hmm. you know, stepping into the model and walking the talk can be challenging. 100%. And but yet we know cycles and we know predictably what can happen if we approach in a certain way or if we avoid in, in some ways, like how that cycle can generate itself. So this is such an important um, conversation and I, I'm really passionate about learning how to walk our talk and using EFT to live out our everyday lives. It's not just something we teach our clients, it's a way of life. And we're never not in relationship with other human beings, right? Mm -hmm. the, the type and intensity and intimacy of those relationships will be all different, but we're always in relationship, whether it's just as fellow societal members, if it's a customer and a business owner, if it's colleagues, if it's friends, lovers, neighbors, family, you know, pastor, whatever, congregation, you know, we're, we always have some type of relationship. So this is gonna be really amazing. Now, so James, if you can maybe help us paint an idea of what these cycles might be looking like now in society. I mean, there's just a, a lot of issues and we know those cycles can kind of transcend 
no matter what you're talking about, it can look very similar. Mm -hmm. So what do you kind of see and experience and, and can you kind of give an overview of what those cycles are? Yeah. So one, I think to help set it up, just like we do in good EFT, I want to take us back to like for a quick moment to step one. And what I mean by that is we have to look at attachment history to set up the current cycles. And what I mean is if you do an attachment history on America through the frame of race, and right now we're going to go with the black, white pair, uh, kind of descriptions. But we, when we think about black or white, these were constructs or ideas created in a way in a time really about oppression. So the idea of white is good, it's superior, you know, we are, we should be conquerors, rulers, of the, that, that kind of thing. And then, um, and then everyone else, they created groupings for everyone that did not fit into this paradigm to subjugate and enslave people all around the world. And so even that, in a way, when I bring that up, in part, when you, one book I'd like to recommend to people is uh, called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Minicum. And what Resma frames around that issue of race is he talks about, it's really about trauma. And so what you have even in Europe is that traumatized people because of class, white people in this particular case were being oppressed and marginalized because of class and really violently. But then they leave Europe and they come over to America, but they have not dealt with that trauma. And then they bring that trauma inside their bodies over to America and they inflict that trauma onto black and brown bodies that was also done to their white bodies. Mm. And so- That, that kind of almost reminds me of with our clients where we see sometimes the one who was bullied now becomes the bully. Yeah, I mean, pain just pain has to be responded to to, to help diminish it. Um, and so keep moving forward that attachment history. So then in America, if we do a racial hash attachment history, then you have all the years of slavery, you have Jim Crow. So starting in 1619 with slavery, but and that's the time, this is the part that's a little bit sad when you think about it. That was a time when you think about white and black people living in closest proximity in America during trauma and oppression. That's the time, and now that's of course slaves living on white landowners, slave owners property. And they were traumatized. There was raping and violence and, and breaking up. They wouldn't allow slaves to, to marry because it honored their humanity. So it was tearing at their families. Um, they would take and they could sell off their children. They, um, the slave owner always retained rights of the women to do whatever they wanted with them, sell them off, have sex with them. The husband of that slave wife, he, as a husband, he couldn't do anything about. So think about what that begins to do to them as a, as a society, but there's still a lot of resilience there too. But then we don't even heal and really repair that trauma. We go right into Jim Crow segregation and we still keep sending the message. Now this is an attachment one. Yourself is net, you, everything about you is black or brown is bad, it's negative. And then we create a fear message. Us as white people, you know, we've got to like protect ourselves from these savages, these beasts, these, this less than. And so, because we know attachment is about view of self, view of other, and emotional regulation. And so, think what that does to black bodies, first and foremost, here we'll say what that sense about their message about them how it affects their view of, of white people. And then what do they have to do in order to survive? All the ways in which they're taught, don't look uppity, don't look too smart, don't do this, don't do that, don't make eye contact. All the ways like to be safe and get home. So you have to begin to shut down your emotions in order to survive in this world. But then also, and now people don't really realize this, the trauma that it inflicted on 
in, in white bodies as well. Because to do that kind of, inflict that kind of injury on another human being, something in you, talking about all the mirror neurons and different ways that we that attunement is wired into us to survive as a species, you have to turn all that off or shift it. And that does something to your own, I believe, body as well. But then even coming out of that, we still didn't really deal with it. We just like as America, like, okay, fine, integrate the schools, do this, do that, and just move on. We have, like, you cannot really find anywhere in our history where we've done significant work of, hey, something happened here that was horrible, and we need, as a nation, need to lament and to grieve this and make sure that we are, are staying vigilant about not only about what we did then, but then even with Jim Crow segregation, the way in which what Jim Crow segregation did is it then moved us apart, by the way, that's attachment. It's like, you live over there, you go to school over there, you go to church over there, and we'll live over here. And so now we're separated. So we've got trauma and we're separated. But now what's happened in modern society to get into these cycles, now we're back in close proximity, but we never dealt with that pain. So now there is more black and brown people finding themselves in different spaces that they would not have usually occupied before. We're going to the same schools. We're beginning to go to the same churches. We're working in the same jobs. Our kids are starting to go to some of the same schools. But let's still remember though, some of those, the, the, the redlining and laws that were put in place are still there. But you find, and now all of a sudden, this pain that white people are living in their community with and not having to really deal with, then black people living in their community and talking about it. And like, what does it mean when you go occupy spaces that are gonna be predominantly white? But now we're having to deal with the pain together that we've not talked about. And then that's where the cycles come up. And particularly, I'm gonna say these things in general ways, Annabelle, and it doesn't fit for everybody, but I sure. typically when I've seen these, what we have when the topic of race comes up, that's the big part. Me and Ryan, we call it the million dollar question when we work with a couple. When you like when we talk to a couple, we'll say, you know, we of course there's the content of their of their discussion. Like it could be something like jealousy or finances. Well, we're not gonna be able to really solve that content. But what we will say is when the topic of finances comes up. What happens to your bond? Because that's where we begin to find when their, their distress comes up, what do they do with the energy and the distress? So when it comes to race, what happens when white and black people typically try and talk about racial pain, racial trauma, or the history of racism? The pattern I typically find is that even if in the rest of their life, a white person might be a pursuer, typically around this conversation, they become a withdrawer. Mm -hmm. And what it is is, that conversation brings up too much distress, too much pain. Why do we got to talk about it? Just push it down. Let's not look at that. Look at how much progress we made. Look at where we're at. We had a black president or this, you know, we try and find all the positive exceptions. Right. And then also in this place, and now I'm it's like, and then in this place, the black and brown people end up having to be the pursuer. And then the mm -hmm. pursuer position, it's if I don't say anything, then we're never going to talk about it. Nothing will ever change. But then when I do talk about it, I'm blamed. I'm told I'm too much. I'm told I'm causing the problem. And all I'm trying to really do is to get you to see, hey, something was wrong here. Something's not right. But then I try not to be too much and I try to just go along. But then, boom, something happens. And then I can't hold it back anymore. And I'm blamed and criticized for bringing it up. Yeah. And so you just keep going it on where for white people's bodies, when they hear it, it brings up shame and guilt. And then to protect themselves and get out of the shame and guilt, they move away or they'll give a quick little like little like kind of like data pushback. And it really is to create space like, well, what about da, 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 da? And really, I like Sue said in her trauma book, if I bring pain to you 
and you respond back to me with a cognitive response, it's almost as though you never saw me or heard me. It's like an invalidation. And then when that happens for the black and brown person, it's like what happens is sometimes I'll say here, like they'll always send out a clear signal about their pain because then they might respond back with a way to convince you and show you how you're wrong and how you're not getting it right and how you are part of the problem, which there probably is something there that needs to be seen, but then it, it comes across and it looks like criticism or blaming and then that you get into this back and forth, back and forth and, um, and on either side, particularly when these don't go well, there's people out there doing great work, but the ones where I see it's not going well, no one's sending a clear signal of vulnerability, particularly of responding to pain. Yeah. And let me say this, and with the attachment injury model comes into place is it gives it order. Mm -hmm. Just like we make space for the person who's been cheated on in a relationship, the other person, the partner who cheated, they probably feel really guilty. They feel really bad. They don't, they hate when they see the pain of what they've done. And it makes them want to shut it down. Let's not talk about, let's not go, let's just look at the positive. But that doesn't work. And as a therapist, we can't hold their guilt and their shame above the pain that was inflicted on the other person. What we have to do is shift it and what in this is make more space for the person who was injured and make space for their pain first because their pain is their body trying to send out a signal to draw in an empathic response which this is your work which you write about empathy right annabelle mm -hmm. and and so for me when i do this work i tell black and brown people is i want to access your pain that even if society even if another white person can't see it and turn towards it i need you to dignify and humanize your own pain and you need to be allowed to have space to put words to your pain for you and not make all of your pain and your healing only be about someone else like validating or seeing your pain because I, what i know from our eft work is my hope is one there's no 100 percent guarantee but i know there's a higher percentage chance of getting a, an empathic response if i send out an emotional signal and then so the this... key part that's step this one. Be like the emotional signal. Now, is this on the part of the person who has the pain and the person who's receiving the signal about the pain? Or, or no, right now, pain? in race right now, it would be the black and brown person. The okay. minor, or if you can apply this to almost any minority group, really. Mm -hmm. Right now, it's, it's like right now, I need, I need to do, I prioritize your pain for a couple of reasons. One, if we're talking about it in the frame of America and race, it's because the injury was committed against black and brown people. One. Two, because they are a minority. It's a power thing, too. Meaning minority, they're probably not going to be the head of the company. Many times they're not the head of the company or the community. But then also, there's only a few of them usually in certain spaces. So it's a little bit harder for that voice to be heard if there's 100 people overall in the company and only five you know, black or brown people. Then they might want to say something, but it's really hard for their voice to rise within that organization where they only represent, you know, 5%, right? And then, and so you do that and the key, that's the first step to be able to get that clear signal out. And then the second step is for the majority culture or white people to be able to stay present with that person while they share their pain and not allow their own defensive mechanisms, their protective mechanisms to make them shift out and move away. And that's really hard. Yeah. And typically, Annabelle, why I think this is so important, and this is me talking about it in a very empathic way, steps one and two don't really happen very well. Because one, it's hard to be vulnerable when you're the minority, because with being vulnerable, you could feel like 
I'm, I mean, that's the idea. It's making me vulnerable. I'm opening myself up to the possibility of being hurt, rejected, or invalidated. And they've probably experienced that in this racial conversation already. Or if they haven't experienced it, the other thing we have to deal with in this, Annabelle, is if you, if you listen to the news or social media, you've seen other people who talk about the same topic get shouted down, invalidated. Mm -hmm. And so that makes you not want to be vulnerable. But just like a good pursuer, your body still says there's a threat that has to be addressed. So I can't be vulnerable. So I'll stay above my vulnerability and kind of use what could sound like blame or criticism. And it's really, I'm just trying to point out some, some, some data facts or historical facts to get you to see something. This isn't fair. This isn't right. This hurts. And then also on the other side, under that for white people, it's then it's like, and then I heard one one person, he said this to me, he's like, I'm afraid to go there, James, because if I allow that guilt to come up, I'm afraid that I'll just be left there in the guilt and I'll just drown in it. So sometimes I do make that defensive move and I take care and I get away from it to protect my own guilt. But I love what he did, that's huge. He, at least he was aware of what he was doing. He caught it, he named it. And then he was able to say, and when I move away to do that, I can see the message that it also sends mm -hmm. to to black and brown people. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So many good points. And you know, I think about, you know, you're talking about how we present our pain to someone else, you know, particularly around social issues, you know, minority groups. And I think again, this can transcend to anybody who's got pain that's saying, you know, I need someone to listen and hear my pain. Correct. That, you know, we know from working with clients, if we come in with blame, with criticism, just automatically pointing the finger, what is that, what impact does that usually have on the other side? Sounds like it, we know in session with our clients, it tends to activate defensiveness, we're backing away, which then leaves that person with pain mm -hmm. and a feeling like, again, their pain is not heard and understood, which mm -hmm. is what they're fighting for. Mm -hmm. Simultaneously, I think what I hear you saying too is that the person on the other side isn't necessarily hearing the clear signal of pain, like, hey, I'm in pain and I need you mm -hmm. to hear this. Mm -hmm. What they hear maybe is an accusation or a mm -hmm. blame. And of course, defensiveness can come up in that place, particularly mm -hmm. if somebody feels maybe unjustly accused, like maybe mm -hmm. not being given the benefit of the doubt that, you know, yes, you have pain, but, you know, maybe I wasn't a part of creating that and I feel condemned for a position that I've not taken without getting to know mm -hmm. my heart or what I've done around that or where I actually stand. But again, then that defensiveness you know, can still mm -hmm. come up on the other side, like you're not willing to listen or you're blinded and it, it can kind of keep this whole whole thing in in play, you know. And can and, I jump in with something you just said yeah. that was beautiful, Annabelle? Mm -hmm. Negative cycles never give people the benefit of the doubt. Right. EFTers will understand that. When we are caught in reactive neg negative cycles, we don't give the benefit of the doubt. We hold on to, to kind of rigid frames to help protect us to make sense of the pain and what's going on in the world. So when I say, what do I mean when I say negative frames never give the benefit of the doubt? It's, that's our body and our brain saying, once again, that's the never again while that you hurt me. This is who you are. This is what you represent to me. And so it's really hard. 
And, and so it's hard to say, you know, on the, I'm gonna go for both sides here, but I'm gonna go with the example you said. So if I, as I, if I'm thinking if I as the white person in that spot to say, I hear the criticism, but like a person doesn't make criticism or they don't bring up things, especially when it's got energy to it, if it's not important. So then that's where I can say, I can stay open and be curious. Hey, I kind of hear what you're saying and this and that, but I, but you know, as you're saying that there's something really important here. You need me to see or need me to understand. Mm -hmm. So can I just make sure I want to really understand that I want to hear it. I want to see it or the other one okay. in when I see you going away, like if you're going away and you're moving away, especially if you're somebody and when I, let me talk about this. When I talk about this, Annabelle and I do this with companies, I don't just do it in society at large in general. I usually want to do it in within communities or organizations where they have, I don't know if the right is the best word, they have some kind of relational equity with each other. Yeah. There has to be some kind of buy-in that our relationship together is important for some overall goal. Yeah. Because if you don't have that kind of buy-in, then why in the world would you put energy and take risks with people that you don't have that kind of buy-in with? Yeah. So that's one thing too. So there needs to be some kind of Hey, who you are and what's going on with you also matters to me. And we, it, like our relationship together matters to each other. There yeah. has to be some form of that buy-in. I love that, which is essential because, you know, when I, when I talk about empathy and I write about empathy, my goal is that we will build relational equity with our fellow man, right? Mm -hmm. That, that seeing another person who's in pain, that their pain will matter because they're another person just like you out in the world who who wants to have a good life and not experience trauma and pain. So, you know, but we can, as a society, become very detached from that. 100%. And then we, we lose touch with that humanity. And again, then that gives more room for that defensiveness and that, you know, space where it's like, well, you know, and human, I love the stance about trauma. Mm -hmm. And I find this, really um i say this to my clients all the time and and you know kind of what you're saying here it feels like it really fits is i often say you don't have to have been the person who originated the wound mm. or the creator of the wound in order to be a part of the healing whoa that's a powerful statement there annabelle and that's that that does fit right into this because the thing i often hear and this is where it does get hard well but i didn't own slaves or I, I didn't do this. And so you, you are exactly correct about even if I didn't do it, that doesn't mean that I don't still have the opportunity to be a part of the healing process. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, even if you didn't do it, it's, it's like what we do in EFT, but right here, right now, you're sharing it with me for a reason. Mm -hmm. And I want you to have a different experience with me right here, right now. Yeah which you mentioned before can be so hard when we're in those moves and, and, you know, to kind of hear underneath the reactivity on the surface to see what's in somebody's heart, the pain that they're trying to bring, which is really tough when somebody is bringing pain to you in the form of blame or accusations. It's like, first we want to defend and say, I'm not that bad person that I hear you see me as, you know, it's like they want to get out of that place first before they can be a part of the healing. And, and I think that can become a block to the conversation sometimes. And, you know, it, I think it takes kind of being a bigger person to set aside that defensiveness 
which is hard. Again, like I said, whether mm -hmm. it's a social justice issue or an injury, you know, or it's just something that's happening between you and your your partner, you know, mm -hmm. to be attacked like is hard to not get sucked into that and see mm -hmm. the hurt, the pain that's underneath that. And I want to also say the, the thing that's hard about negative cycles is it makes you hear things in a very personal way. So sometimes what I see is not, I'm not saying like I'm the best or whatever. I, I'm a person that's prone to whatever. And so sometimes I'll be doing these talks and I'm sharing and I'm just kind of like, I'm even just with me giving like the attachment history around race that triggers some people and you'll hear them going, like, I'll be talking just like, Hey, this is a story just about America in general. And then I'll have a participant that will come to me and they'll be like, but James, I didn't listen. I, I, and I'm like, ah, oh, Hey, can I just check in for a moment? That even though I was talking about society in general, and I might have said that these are things that we were never a part of, but these are the histories and the things in the background that have shaped this present moment. It took you to this place where you felt it very personally. You start saying, I, I, I. Can I help me here? And like what it is, is this is where ethnicity and things becomes very powerful. Typically minorities, their racial identity and the groups they're a part of are a very preeminent part of their lives. It's very clear to them foods and music and dialect and, and the icons of, of these different ethnic groups are so important. And it's, it's like, because it's also trying to overcome the negative view of self that was put upon them through racism. Yeah. And so they behold to it. But then what happens is, and particularly, and I could be wrong, and like, this is just a general reality. For white people, it's like many times they go through life and they don't think about whiteness or them being white. It just is what it is. You know, we're Americans, but when used what America meant was, you know, white land owning male, like, you know, you had to be of like this kind of thing, or you talk like this, you look, they, they don't even think about it. So then when you start talking about race, all of a sudden it's a shock to their system because now you're bringing up something about their identity that even when I talk about racism from the past, they identify themselves with in a personal way and it hits their system because they, it's not something they preeminently think about. So going to what you said, Annabelle, when you said like, here through the blame and accusation, there is some of that, but then sometimes it's like, even when a person shares in a vulnerable way, the negative cycle still makes you interpret it in a very negative personalized way. And then you move to still defend yourself. Yeah, yeah, that, that really resonates a lot. Um, and I, I find too, like even with my clients, it's like where your trauma, where your wounds occurred tend to be kind of your greatest frequency that you're tuned into as you move through life and experience the world. It's the signal you're most honed into to pay attention to and to scan for threats of. And, you know, that, that has an impact. And then, you know, I love what you said about, it's almost like can jolt identities, people who never even thought about it and you know interpreting that likewise through those filters and i i find that comes up a lot too particularly um you know i think i hear pushback from from like subcultures like if even if you grew up white but you grew up in poverty right mm -hmm. so when you hear things about privilege you're saying hey like you're you're assigning something to my racial identity that I don't feel like I've ever received a benefit of because I'm still struggling. I'm still having hardship. And then again, their, their defensiveness comes up because they're hearing yeah. that in a very personal way. And can I say this, this is one part where I try and break it down. There are people that are working at policy levels. There are great, the, the, like, uh, what is it? 
I don't know what the right term, sociologists and people of that nature that are talking about this and big, and those are necessary. So mm -hmm. me, where I'm coming in in healing conversations is I'm getting back down to the personal relational level. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, is there is this general part, but when we're talking about these things, I think a good thing to do for all of us in these conversations that it gives us an opportunity, we need to sit down and just do an inventory on ourselves. Hey, what are the things that have been very important to how I show that that my identity as a person? What are the factors that all shape my life? And you know, there is ethnicity, there's gender, there's a social class you grew up in, if you're a part of a faith community. These are all things that are very, going back to why, you know, attachment is universal to all human beings, because attachment affects, once again, view of self, view of others, and emotional regulation. And these are all things that are very, they go to our view of self. They are all about our view of self. And so when we're talking in healing conversations is, how do I connect with the person in front of me and not just a big global story? I do need the global story because it forms context for these two people who are meeting or company. Yeah. All of us are affected by the global story, but then we have different sub stories within that. And I wanna hear who you are as a person. I want you to hear who I am as a person. And can we talk through the difficulties together without it tearing us apart? And I got one more point with that, Annabelle, that's important. So here's why I think this is so hard to do, Annabelle. Because so many people wanna do it at a content level and we can't solve all the content. Now we do need to address the content, but I think why it goes bad many times is because of the part where we get emotionally dysregulated in the conversation. Yeah. And the idea of talking about race, this is how I say it to people. Talking about racism and racial trauma in America is a stage two conversation really. Mm. Because what is, you know, in EFT we understand that the first stage is de-escalation and then we go into restructuring the bond. But when the topic of race comes up, we move right to stage two and skip stage one. Because the idea, when you start talking about race, it goes to everybody's model of self, their catastrophic fears, their attachment traumas. And then what happens is we jump into stage two and we haven't done stage one, and then it blows the whole thing up. And it keeps us all saying, never again will I take that risk with you. Yeah, that's so important. And it strikes me that, you know, again, that not even just race but i've seen this come up with religious groups you know and so it's so important what you're saying and, and i love the way that you're saying this you know it's about we skip stage one about de-escalation which is like the scaffold for us to be able to restructure that bond together and where we make lasting second order change occur and if we can't you know intervene on that negative cycle and help everyone to de-escalate and, and re-regulate together, then it's going to be hard to get to the place where we can bond together when we're still caught up in mm -hmm. either pointing fingers or, you know, putting up blocks and defenses. And, you know, we'll just be kind of doomed to keep repeating that same cycle where we're 100%. staying out of connection. 100%. And which is why I love when I first, when I first started doing this, I talked to Sue about it. And I said, Sue, what I've been doing, and I did this at least two or three times now in the community, I just reformatted her hold me tight conversations for race and progressively take groups through, all right, here's a little education on this. Now go have the conversation. How did that conversation go? All right, great. That's what we learned from it. Let's move. And we progressively help move them into this deeper level of working through. Now, once again, that's in a very intensive weekend format. Um, yeah. So we give an eclipsed view. So let's just kind of, you know, 
if we're a pursuer and a withdrawer and we're in stage one and we've got, meaning we're, we're escalated, we've got pain. If you're, we'll start with the pursuer side. If you're the pursuer who says, I've got pain that's mm -hmm. being activated by something, how do I share the pain mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, at least on our part, it's attempting to not engage in a negative cycle, but have our pain mm -hmm. heard and understood. Because we yeah. know we know what will create the negative cycle. If we go in with criticism, blame, we know that's part that part of the dance because we work with it with our clients. So if I've got yeah. pain, you've got pain, how do we share that? Yeah. And one thing I'll say with criticism or blame, these are all just ways of what how it sounds to the other person. Right. But sometimes the person doing it, just like a pursuer, they don't recognize that it, they're doing it that way. In yeah. their mind, they really are like, hey, I'm trying to pound on an obvious threat here, a danger, so we can address it and be better. So you saying it's criticism and blame does not fit what's going on in my head in this moment. So that's one part. So when yeah. I do this with when I do this well, with important. yep. So when I do this with, um, I still, I'm taking this from Resma Minicum and it was really good what he said. Whenever I do these conversations with a group, I start off with really two, well, what this is this one question really. Hey, we're gonna be talking about race, racism and trying to have healing conversations around that this weekend. Can y'all take a moment and everyone just check in with your body. Even just hearing that topic come up and knowing that you're gonna to have to turn and look into the eyes of someone of the opposite race and talk about this. What do you feel happen in your body? And I literally have participants stop and slow down with that. All right, so good. So tell me where, and where do you feel that at in your body? And as you hear that in your body, what does your body wanna do with that energy? Does it make you wanna to turn towards people and talk? Does it make you wanna turn away from people and like not do this? Does it make you wanna turn against them? What do you feel that body, that part of your body, what is it wanting to do here? Mm. And and why do you think that your body wants to make that move? Like this is like, you know, we've been influenced by George Fowler because it's, we're trying to understand the function and I want people that's so I'm doing it in stage one way. It's like, the, and so in stage one, we wanna you know, one, do assessment and all that, but I'm, it's like a step three. I need you to access the underlying emotions and yeah. needs. So that's I'll ask good, that question in that. That's point. a great place to kind of check yourself. And, and I want to bring this back to something you said before about the global message is that global message has an attachment meaning to us. And if we can't get to that attachment meaning, it's going to be hard to understand why we feel what we feel and why our body wants to do what it wants to do, right? If the 100%. If the global message is, you know, I'm bad, evil, or I'm this or I'm that. You know, what does your body want to do with that message? And does that position kind of close you off from hearing what's happening between the two of you? You know, like listening to something global rather than listening to what's right here in front of you. And that person may not have even come into the conversation, like yeah. attacking you or, or, you know, engaging in a way that feels like blame or criticism. They, they might have said nothing, but again, we're like anticipating sometimes because that of that global message, yeah. right? And so yeah. in stage one, we want our, just like we do in EFT, we want our clients to find their emotion. We want them to find their moves in the cycle and what their moves are trying to do for them. What are they even hoping for in these moves? And we want them to begin to like, in the, and like own those moves, not in a labeling diagnostic way, but like, hey, when I get scared and I feel like I'm being blamed, my body ramps up and I get defensive and because my defensiveness is trying to push back against that thing that makes me feel like I'm bad and I hear bad. 
right? Or even on the other side, I'll go on the other side. Like if the global message tells me white people are bad, they, they'll never want to hear you. They don't care about no one but themselves. And all they're going to do is just just take everything for themselves and leave every then that's going to bring my body in already ready ramped up to be invalidated and so i'm going to have to come in with it. if i really want to share a message then i'm going to make sure i come in with a little extra oomph to it and i'm yeah. going to hit you with some hard things so that way you don't turn away from me so yeah. that way you can't silence me ironically so i like i already see the negative cycle at play right there and, and again it's the same way that i see it with the couples in sessions like you know, a lot of times tuning into that global message, you know, it's like, you know, either I, I come in already defensive, expecting to be attacked, or I come in expecting you to shut me down and not hear me and not being open to me. So I enter into that conversation as if you've already done those things without even finding out if you're open or willing. So then that other person you know, it reinforces the very thing that we were afraid was going to happen. And then when our defenses come up, then it's like, see, you aren't listening to me. You're closed off. And the other person saying, see, you pointed the finger at me. You think I'm evil. See, <laughs> you know, and then you see, you caught it, you caught it, Annabelle. And that's the thing I think that as therapists and clinicians, um, I think that's the gift we get to bring to the world. So I like watching news or watching these social media debates. <laughs> And I think people are saying some important things, but I just keep watching like, oh, when that happens, watch this. Boom. Okay, now this happens. Boom. And it's just like tracking the cycle. No wonder very we don't ever get anywhere. Here, right? Yes. Very and then when the negative happens. cycle comes in and it takes over and then it keeps sending us the, the very the message about you're, you know, you're not safe. You're not safe. So therefore, we can't do this together. And yeah. so you, and it keeps us stuck in once again, that never again stands. Right. Yeah. So if I'm so if I'm a pursuer and I've got pain and I need somebody to hear my pain, you know, what would be a way that oh, yeah. you would help a pursuer share their pain? I love it. You know, like I remember I was at a I was at a conference and it was a mixed group and one um, black female. I love what she said. I uh, uh, a, a, a white participant who was who was in this place almost act like a withdrawer in a way shared something and I, of course they took a risk and so it's like hey thank you for speaking out i really appreciate that this big stepping up and she came in with something and it was beautiful what she said some people might hear it as critical but it was actually vulnerable i have a little bit of a problem every day as a black woman in spaces there are things happen to me every day and i make it through it i still show up and treat people with respect I swallow my tongue so many times. Sometimes I do speak out. Sometimes I don't because I see people are trying and no one ever validates my human, like my attempts to be a, like, to be a, I'm trying to be a good human being too. And no one sees it. Mm. I was like, oh, that's your protest. Mm. I appreciate it. And that's the thing with the pursuers that we typically hear. People hear you speak out one or two times, but they don't see the 1,000 times that you chose to let things go. The times when something happened and you were invalidated and you said, you know, that's okay, that's all right. And you, the 1,000 times, you, and then you speak out one time and then boom, oh, look at you, you're this and you're that. And it's like. That's so like common for the pursuer experiences. Like they, they try so many times and those tries often get overlooked or not seen. And then the time that they, speak up or they're upset and they push back or advocate then it's like oh no you know and that 
that can feel bad. And let me jump in because I didn't answer your question specifically. And I know we got to get ready to wrap up, but I want to make sure I do say it. So this is James having done some work in his own journey. And I typically in this conversation, I'm the one that has to bring up the, the hard thing, even though in life I'm really withdrawn. But like, you know, and so when I do, I do say it's that place where I've learned, like, I can go to someone and say, hey, hold on a second. Something happened here and you said this thing. And that's really concerning for me, because if when you say that, it makes me feel like the relationship between you and I can't be safe. Like, like, like you're not going to really hear me. There's, and then if I get into a hard spot as a black person in this company and I want to bring something up, like you're going to move to protect yourself then to also then to like, to, to really hear me out as a person. So let me make sure I'm just saying like, this is the threat I see, and this is how it's scary for me. And this is what I'm hoping for with me and you. So I keep using that I'm sharing my inner experience and being honest to my inner experience. So it's not even me trying to not trigger you. I just, I, for me, I feel better when, you know what? I shared my truth. I share, and when I say my truth, meaning I talked about me. I don't want to spend all my time just kind of constantly, you know, you never this and you always that because then, and I never share my experience because then it feels a little bit like, but I wasn't heard, but then I never gave an opportunity for myself to be heard. That's so true. It's like, it's I want- mine. I want this person to hear me and my experience, but I end up either talking about them and what I think they've done or what the global message has said they've done or what the what experience the global message says that I should have had or might be mm -hmm. having without ever checking in with myself and asking myself, what is the experience I'm having? How does that affect me? And what is it that I need this person to hear and really understand about my pain and experience? Yeah, which is, I think for me, there have been times I've done that, Annabelle, and people still just walk away. And that that that's that hurts. And you know, it's disappointing sometimes. But also I don't, you know, I have a community, I have a secure base around me, my wife, you know, I've got, you know, colleagues. But also I guess what I'm saying is it feels good now when it's like, you know what? Um I can I I have words from my experience now. And there are things I can kind of do. You know, for me now, this is talking at the, at the at the relational level, but I do hope that more people can have healing conversations. I wish more political leaders could. I wish more clergy leaders could. I wish more business leaders could do and not like just in, in be able to do this in a mixed racial group. Because what I've seen with the the people that have done this, Annabelle, it reshapes their view of themselves and of the world. And what these people go people go on to do is they begin to think about in their realm of influence. Like, wait a minute, what am I doing in my company? How can in my company I can be making society better. I want that pol political leader not just worry about you know votes and speeches, but like, wait a minute, what does this really mean? Like, I think I I have I'm, I now carry in me the experience of other constituents that are look different or experience the world differently than me, and then yeah. that affects them when they lobby and when they make policies and laws. You know, for clergy leaders, like, what does it mean to really be a faith healing community? that really sees all people as, as like in Martin Luther King's words, like, you know, as equal, as, mm -hmm. you know, of, of having these virtuous character, things that go beyond the color of their skin, but recognizing that the color of their skin is important because things were established in society that harmed their view of self yeah. based in racism. Yeah, which, you know, can be on both sides. And that's where it gets tricky is that mm -hmm. When, when the defensiveness comes in, we close up and fail to see that it can land as a harmful message or view of self on, on both sides. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, part of 
are stance and EFT, you know, we've talked about empathy, it's also curiosity and trying to create a path where we can be open and curious about each other's experience so that we can listen to each other's hearts, listen to each other's pain, listening for what needs to be heard and understood and work towards being a part of the solution yep. rather than getting caught up in defensiveness or, you know, what feels like blame or attacks, you know, mm -hmm. how can we step in it together? So, yeah, you know, on one yeah. hand, I hear you saying, you know, if I've got pain, if I'm a, if I'm a minority or, you know, this could be race, this could be religion, you know, or you could just be a person with pain. You know, if I want somebody to hear my pain, first and foremost, I've got to get clear about my experience and what, what my pain is and what it is that I need to be heard so that I can give myself the highest percentage chance of sharing that clear signal where I'm coming into the conversation talking about me, my pain, my goal, my longing, mm. and you know, my experience. Yeah. And then yeah. what I also hear kind of on the receiving end is is you're the maybe the withdrawer in this position is a, you know, also being willing to kind of see past the level of reactivity, which takes a really big person to be able to do to kind of set that aside and remember what we know in EFT about human behavior is that people who are reactive, that reactivity comes out of a place of pain. So mm -hmm. recognizing where there's reactivity, there's pain. So can I tune into this person's pain and hear what it is they're, that they're trying to share and also be aware of what comes up for me in this place, the, maybe the attachment message that I have around view of self and the emotions that come along with this, what do I, you know, what does my body want me to do in this place? And can I find a path to share my longings in this place so that, you know, I'm not putting you down. I'm not closing off. I'm opening space. I'm hearing you. We're hearing each other mm -hmm. and remaining curious. And something you said also. Hey, Annabelle, really can I just make sure I get one more part in? So like I did talk yeah. about the pain, but here's mm -hmm. what happens is when, you know, I'm in this place talking about in white and black, when white people are able to stay with a black person or brown person when they share their pain, there is a space where one, when you do that with someone, they'll usually drop more vulnerably into their story some more. And then once you still stay with them in that vulnerable place, then it opens up space to now where, where there might be shame or guilt for you, then it does begin to open up some space to where you can process that shame and that guilt but it's first because you met the pain but also yeah. what i think for many white people like and just like when we talk about with with like attachment with affair recovery mm -hmm. when that person who inflicted the pain gets to see that that person shares vulnerably and they get a couple of reps of responding to that person's pain and seeing that they can actually where i was once either either i was because i know we're talking about race either i was a part of it or people that look like me were a part of it, or in some ways I benefited from it. Where So where I maybe represent some of that pain, I also now get a new experience of being a source of comfort. Yeah. And you know what that does for them? That mm -hmm. begins to shift some of the guilt, that shifts some of the defensiveness. Yeah. Because now they get to get experience of, oh, where there is a part of the story where it makes me feel bad, I'm now we're writing a new story where one, your pain is not bad, your pain makes sense, and it deserves to be heard and dignified. And also, we get to form this new story together, where now, and that's a big part to ending Sue's attachment injury part is the two parties come together. And now what they're doing is they're building a new story, where they've yeah. come together for both working towards healing.
really like that. It's like working towards a hold me tight conversation in society, which to me is the way that we heal our humanity and remain in good relationship with each other, you know, rebuild society and and keep our country or our, our, again, our humanity just strong and connected. And, you know, what, what strikes me too as important that, you know, it's kind of coming online for me as we talk about this that I often see with my couples it's like I think for that withdrawer stance one of their goals is I want you to not see me as bad or evil and when I it's like if I can feel like you can see that I'm not bad or evil I can also open up maybe space in my own heart to check in you know get curious get curious about my experiences you know you mentioned you know, before we've talked about kind of like cultures and subcultures, particularly around race and ethnicity is that, you know, if you know in my heart that I'm not, could could these, making space for these two things to exist, could I not be a racist and not have that in my heart? Because, you know, we tend to come in and and apply labels that feel very ugly and very awful. And and I think people just don't want to have that attachment meaning assigned to their heart when that's not how they feel in their heart simultaneously they may have behaviors or things in their subculture that they're not even aware of that sends a signal that's actually the opposite and so being able to get curious that could i maybe have been doing these things not from a place of racism but these are embedded in the subculture that i never knew were perpetuating this awful message and now i can be a part of changing that message not doing that behavior and doing something different so that I make sure I don't send you that signal because that's not in my heart. And I want to align behavior, you know, with what's in my heart and have that well received that you would see and experience me as having love and openness for your experience, for your pain, and that I'm for you and want to be with you and together with you, not a, you know, I'm trying to hurt you kind of thing. Yeah. And let me say this, we all have blocks and blind spots around race in these different mm-hmm. social factors, we all do. And here's the part where it often goes wrong, Annabelle. And I can I can appreciate for many white people, when I hear this conversation, I'm just being general here, right? This is still general, everybody, is they want, they first they wanna start off the conversation with, I want you to see that I'm not bad, I'm not evil. But the problem, and then so they wanna keep throwing out the defensiveness, but then when defensiveness, what does it say? It reinforces the other person's worst fear. So sometimes it's, open to me. Right? You if you really mind. want to show that you're not bad and you're not evil, I'm not saying be a whip, like be, you know, just yes. kind of be just a doormat for anybody, but it's you show you're not bad and you're not evil by being present with people in their pain. Yeah. That's how you show it. Like you can mm-hmm. say it with words, but we actually need experience. That's why EFT is an experiential model. Yes, I need an experience to... with you that shows yeah. me that you're safe. You like the, going back to what we were talking about earlier. This is Sue's work that you are ARE. This is the th- this is, if I your listeners leave with nothing else in racial conversations for it to change, you need ARE. You can be accessible, you can be responsive, and the key part in the last one is emotionally engaged. In other words, when my pain comes up, you don't stay distant from my pain you get proximal to my pain. And I can yeah. see that you, that my pain has also entered your body and we're carrying it together. Yeah, I think that's so beautiful and so important. And this process, you know, again, the process of EFT and attachment injury repairs, the process whereby which we work through pain, right? Where we share pain or we receive someone else's pain. 
And, you know, multiple really important points here is that, you know, just because somebody's sharing pain with you doesn't mean they're automatically saying that I think you personally are doing this to me, but they are saying, hear my pain, it's something painful and terrible has happened to me and I need you to hear that. Really good. And, you know, on the other side, being able to recognize, you know, maybe they're not seeing me as terrible, but maybe I have been doing something even unknowingly that has been a part of the problem that has mm -hmm. perpetuated a message that I never even knew it was sending. You know, we see this in couples all the time that their partner ends up sending a signal that they have no idea is landing on their partner in that way. And they keep doing it, not knowing they're reinforcing a trauma or a hurt. And so it's like, they're kind then they get seen more as that problem. And even if you weren't the creator of the problem, you know, I think what we want to do is work towards how do I now become a part of the healing solution mm -hmm. and step into your pain with you. And we see each other together as, as I see your pain and I want to be a part of that solution. And I mm -hmm. don't want to be a part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And I'm willing to look at myself in this place, which, you know, again, also takes a lot of courage and being able to recognize where reactivity comes, there's pain. So it's not yeah. always, you know, you're attacking me. It's they're saying, oh, this is big. Because I think of even when clients get angry and they turn it on you, the therapist, they're not really saying you're terrible, you're incompetent, you're this. They're really saying, can you help me? Can you hear me? Mm. And that's, you know, being able to be on that receiving end, like they're saying, can you hear me? Can you help me? Can you be a part of that solution? And to be able to step up and say, yes, I'm, I'm here with you. I want to be a part of your solution. I want to help heal this pain, you know? And so bringing us into that hold me tight conversation around race, social issues, religion, whatever it is, you know, even if it's none of those and just, you know, two people having a conversation about pain, mm -hmm. you know, we want to do the highest percentage moves that brings about change. The goal at the end is change and healing. Mm. That's good, Annabelle. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, James, just for shedding light on this. And I hope that everyone listening to this will really kind of meditate on what's been shared and really take it to heart and maybe use some of what we've what we've talked about today as they enter into their own conversations mm -hmm. to receive someone else's pain to share their pain you know that we can step towards each other and and build that equity in just fellow human beings because mm -hmm. all are worthy and deserving of love and respect and value and equity and you know we've got to care because they're just another human being just like we are. And the moment mm -hmm. we stop carrying our humanity, we lose. We mm -hmm. all lose, you know? So, mm -hmm. you know, then we've got to care. Thank you, Annabelle. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing this and for the great work that you do in helping people have these healing conversations. Now, if people want to find you, if they want to maybe have you come do a training or they want to work with you or they want you to come help them have healing conversations, mm -hmm. how do they find you? Uh, well, one is great. I'll be working with Leanne Campbell and, um, and, and Robin in, in Toronto. Well, we're Robin Blake. Um, but we're going to be doing uh, what is called Zoom into EFT. And we're going to be talking about the attachment injury repair model 
for affairs, but then we're also gonna have a sub-conversation around attachment injury repairs and this thing that we did here. So we'll get a little bit more explicit with the process. So they can find that is uh, zooming in the EFT. They can find out and register. They can find the link to register by going to my social media, uh, Facebook at DocHawkLPC, or you can follow me on Instagram at DocHawkLPC, or you can shoot me an email, DocHawkLPC at gmail.com. Perfect. So I will put links to all this information on the description for this video in YouTube. Hopefully if you're listening to this on um, regular audio podcast, you can just pause, rewind and take some notes or you can just Google Doc Hawk EFT. Oh, I wanna and talk about my podcast too that I do with yes. Brian Reyna, uh, the leading edge and emotionally focused therapy podcast where we just talk about very like micro kind of parts of EFT. Um, for and it's really for clinicians, so definitely check that out on all your on Apple and Spotify. Excellent. Make sure you know the leading edge in EFT. It's a free podcast. Some free. some additional free nuggets to help you continue in your journey of learning EFT, and um, really amazing stuff. And so make sure that you guys look up James and contact him if you'd like to work with him. Have him come to your area. Um, maybe get some supervision or, or just some help facilitating healing conversations. And we hope that that what you heard today will also help facilitate some healing conversations and some openness um, to helping, you know, healing these important issues. And uh, thank you so much to our listeners. Make sure that you hit subscribe because more videos are on the way. Don't forget to buy my book. Using Relentless Empathy in the Therapeutic Relationship, Connecting with Challenging and Resistant Clients for Helping Professionals. Available on Amazon or on my website, www.drbugatti.com.